I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. Hopefully you've had the opportunity to check out our YouTube channel. It's educationonfire.com forward slash YouTube. We'll take you there where you can rewatch some of the live shows that we have. It's an opportunity for you to get involved in real discussions and ask questions as part of a, a live podcast as it's going on. So yeah, please do check that out, educationonfire.com forward slash YouTube. Now today I'm delighted to be chatting to Joshua Fullard and he's an assistant professor at the Warwick Business School, University of Warwick and a research associate at the Research Centre on Microsocial Change, University of Essex. His research can broadly fit into three categories, teachers and the teacher labour markets, education inequalities and research methods. His work is regularly cited in the media, government reports and in parliamentary debates. Dr. Fuller received his PhD from the Institute of Social and Economic Research at the University of Essex and has previously held positions in the Department for Economics at the University of Essex, the Education Policy Institute, as well as the IFO Institute in Munich. So however you're listening to the podcast, I hope you find it really informative, really enjoyable, and I really enjoyed my conversation with Joshua Fullard. Hi, Joshua. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's great to chat with somebody who's working within a university, someone who's based in research. And I think it's going to be a really important conversation rather than just the chatter that we have about how we'd like education and what the problems are, but to have that in real fact. So, yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. Really happy to be here. So why don't we start? Tell us um, where you're working and sort of how that sort of research role fits in. Yeah, great question. So I'm uh, I'm at the University of Warwick, so at the um, business school, Warwick Business School, based at the University of Warwick. Um, I've been here since kind of last September, so I'm coming up to just over a year being here now. Um, really great environment. Um, so I'm fortunate to teach a lot of you know really ambitious, talented students, and it's kind of really enjoyable. Um, so kind of like you know I've taught kind of first year undergrads, master students, MBA students, and PhD students. So I've taught kind of ride along kind of the spectrum and it's really honestly it's just a great job you know teaching is I really enjoy kind of a teaching aspect of it um kind of my research um really focuses on kind of three different factors so it's really looking at kind of understanding teachers and teacher labor markets so that's kind of why do people go into teaching and why do people leave teaching and what policies we can implement to kind of um you know improve the improve both of the, the quantity diversity and quality of people going into teaching um, I know I said quality there, and that can be quite contentious, um, but I think um, uh, everyone who's been involved in education knows that some people are better at teaching than others, and they, you know we in general want to try to encourage the excellent teachers to be the ones who kind of predominantly are in the profession. Um, so that's kind of one aspect. The other part of my research looks to kind of 
um, education inequalities. So, you know, why do young people from less affluent backgrounds, well, why are they less likely to go to university um, than their colleagues more affluent backgrounds, even controlling for like educational attainment? So why is it if it's two students who get the same grades, while the one from a less affluent background is significantly less likely to go to university? Well, why is that? And then kind of my third aspect, a part of research is really kind of on, on um, like survey methods and kind of really understanding, well, how do we ask people questions and how then do we use that data to inform um, kind of decision making in practice? Um, it's really, really important stuff, I know. And the uh, the quality thing came up in a meeting for me over the weekend, and it was uh, very contentious. <laughs> and it started with, uh, so is quality teaching being able to do everything that Ofsted wants and being able to come out with outstanding and therefore it's fantastic quality teaching, or is there more to it than that? So I'll, I'll, well, let's open that door and, and see what your research says and, and, and some thoughts on that. that. That, Mark, that is a brilliant question. So, um I don't think Ofsted necessarily is measuring teacher quality. Um, and that's not because I don't think Ofsted is important. I don't think schools and teachers should be held, held accountable. But it is almost certainly true that being a good teacher is so multidimensional. It is something that you, it's very, very challenging to assess. So this is things that kind of researchers um, try to assess. So we try to do, um, you know, we do like different kind of assessments is this related to student, is teacher quality? We can look at their educational attainment. So is it the case that uh, better teachers maybe go to Oxbridge? Um, well, that's not the case. Is there a relationship between what degree they have, um, kind of um, what the A-levels were? Well, actually, there's not really much of a relationship here. So it actually seems like being an excellent teacher is actually something really hard to measure. And I think in general, um, there's one way to look at this is kind of looking at, well, how do we observe um, students' grades change throughout the year? So are some students making more progress than others? So that's one way to get at that, get at kind of teacher ability. But then we're missing a huge amount of other factors that make a good teacher. And this could be like in, in, in helping students develop their social skills, right? So this isn't measured on assessments. Um, it also could be systematically true that some classes are just easier or more difficult to teach them than others. So it could just be that a teacher has a really nice, easy class. So it has a really nice dynamic. So they make loads of progress. Well, the other class might have a lot of challenging students and they might make less progress. But that doesn't mean the teacher in the more challenging class is any less able because it could be that actually the teacher who's been given the challenging class the head teacher actually knows that they're actually a really good teacher may actually can over up the challenge. So it's, it is really contentious and it is really challenging to identify who good teachers are and, um, and kind of how to measure it. Um, and I think my general kind of um, area of this is I trust teachers to be able to know who is a good teacher. So I'm sure an experienced teacher can probably walk into a classroom and after, you know, a period of time, they probably have an idea of, you know, does this teacher know what they're doing? Are they experienced? Are they teaching in the, you know, in a way that kind of makes sense or not? Um, just as kind of I could probably walk into a lecture or a class at university and I could probably tell if it's a good teacher or not at kind of the university level. I'm sure we're kind of a secondary school and primary level. I'm sure uh, most of your listeners who are in the sector could probably say they could probably go into that classroom and quite easily kind of pick up if they're kind of, um, you know, their style and if they're kind of good or not. And that's it, isn't it? It's a little bit like when people say, you know, why did you pick this school? And let's assume when you've got a choice of schools and you're not just going to the one that you were dealt. It's that kind of, well, you know, 
the grade seemed good and this was good and you know the building wasn't falling down <laughs> whatever it happens to be but the, the the underlying feeling is usually just it had a great feeling i felt very welcome um and like you say that's not on any printed sheet anywhere or or anything like that it's just a sense of the environment the culture the way people are, are learning together and like you say once you sort of get rid of the fact it has to be something where you can sort of mark it out of 10 then i think then maybe it opens you up to kind of like say you know what you know and you know the people you're working with and, and how that comes across yeah no i think you've picked up on a really good point there mark so kind of the match between kind of like a classroom teacher and a school leader is so important so kind of i've done some research on this and actually school leadership is one of the primary drivers of um, the classroom teacher's decision to kind of stay in the professional not so leave teaching completely or change schools. So actually, um, and what I find is really fascinating is that some te- within a school, some teachers can say this um, school leadership's excellent and others can say it's not so good. And that doesn't mean that the head teacher or the school leaders aren't good or not. It's just there's maybe a difference in match there. So I think you made a great point of, I, I think... When some kind of one of my kind of um, one of my recommendations, if there's kind of any teachers who are listening, well, I'm sure there are lots of teachers listening to this um, who are kind of thinking about switching schools or for when you go into a job or kind of go go for an interview, they're not just interviewing you. You're also interviewing them, because if for whatever reason the fit's not right for you and it's not kind of a, an atmosphere or a situation where you feel you can do your best work, um, you know, it's no point in kind of doing a job you love at somewhere that's not quite a good fit. Um, and one of the things that I find really fascinating, so this is kind of some ongoing research, um, historically, um, teachers report some of the highest kind of job satisfaction and psychological well-being um, compared to almost every other graduate profession. So historically, teachers are high job satisfaction, really happy and enjoying what they do. Um, since COVID, this has actually been reversed. So I think um, the Department of Education commissioned a survey on teacher psychological well-being um, that was done this year and found that actually um, teachers' well-being is now lower on average than kind of other graduate occupations. And I've done my own work, so I I did a survey recently as well at the end of the academic year, um, which again found similar things. So teacher psychological well-being is now lower than in alternative professions. So I think it is this really important thing of, you know, you're doing a a job that has huge societal benefits. I mean, so I would argue uh, that teachers are kind of the most important profession in society. I mean, the the influence teachers have on the development of young people's lives is only matched by kind of outside the household is unmatched, right? So incredibly important. They do this vital job. But actually, for whatever reason, teachers' well-being is falling. And I think it is one of those where you know, if I could speak directly to the teachers, it would be, you have to look after yourself. You're doing a vitally important job, but you have to look after yourself. You sometimes have to put yourself first. So it's, um, yeah, so I think making sure that match between teacher and school is so vitally important. And if for whatever reason you don't feel that match, um, we need teachers, schools need teachers. So I'm sure there are plenty of opportunities to kind of relocate to different schools. Um, but I know that can be challenging, especially when you have a family uprooting your family can be really challenging so i know there are kind of constraints there yeah that's a really interesting point and um i won't mention the school but there's a school that i'm i'm just going to loosely say associated with (laughs) um and they have a particular week which is coming up which is the one week in the year where you're actually allowed to put your well-being first 
so you're not expected to work in the evenings to mark to do all of those other things um and and i know it's done with the the best possible thought and understanding but it seems to me it really blatantly shows the reality of what actually happens because you know that might be a fantastic week but there are plenty of other weeks in the year where actually it's not possible and it's interesting i think how teachers feel um about themselves and and in terms of the job itself that actually if you're well one if you do put yourself first can you actually do your job um yeah. is, the, is the first thing and if you can't do your job because you can't put those number of hours in what where does that leave you you know is your job threatened are you going to be in trouble all of that kind of thing and i think it's so difficult for people and and when you do want to sort of find out about how to do that and i know um, we've got some guests coming up who are specifically is sort of helping people with that but it's so tricky and i think for me it was having children which made the biggest difference because it's kind of like you know the here and now the thing about being present is when you've got a child that needs feeding yeah. <laughs> i don't care how much you need to mark something yeah. <laughs> that's not it's not going to work but yeah it's it's a really sort of contentious issue isn't it yeah, and I think one of the other things that kind of I think that also kind of affects teachers kind of their ability to almost not kind of not, you know, look after themselves and they almost feel because I know so teachers have really strong kind of what's called pro-social motivations. So they generally have uh, score very highly on these different kind of social scales because they really care about what they do. And I think part of it isn't like just I, you know, am I able to do my job if I'm not working 60 hours a week? It's also, am I letting down my students? And it's kind of this kind of combination of things that really kind of drive teachers to work what are almost certainly unmanageable work workloads. I mean, the, the burnout, the stress, this is really, this is huge. And I, I think, so I know the government has implemented a few kind of ideas about how to kind of reduce this, but I think it really does need to, a combination of, you know, teachers should be financially rewarded because I think it's absolutely um, disgusting, to be quite frank, how teachers have been treated since 2010. So just kind of for, for a bit of context, um, teachers have experienced a real terms uh, reduction in salaries of up to 13% since 2010. Um, during the same period, um, kind of average earnings have increased by about 2%. Um, and this just kind of this kind of um, on, well, for the kind of a recruitment and retention of teachers perspectives, teachers is now less attractive, less people want to go into teaching, more people are leaving. But it also speaks to how teachers feel they're valued in society. I mean, what happens when, you know, teachers are earning, you know, relatively 12% less compared to other graduate professions? Well, what signal does that to show about how teachers feel valued? What, what you know, it's, it's like, if my, if my job suddenly got paid 12% less compared to other jobs, I'd suddenly feel that actually maybe society doesn't value what I do. But that's not the case at all. You know, teachers are, as I kind of said previously, I'd argue the most important profession in society. And I think the way they've been treated is really actually shocking. And I feel very actually sorry for a lot of teachers because they're working incredibly hard. They have, they're under-resourced because, you know, school budgets have been pressed. They're earning less money now. And they're often having to do even more work because of kind of the shortages in schools. They're now having to do more work than they were before. And add on to this kind of an increase in teacher numbers, I think that's now, um, sorry, in pupil numbers, I think that's now hitting like secondary schools. So a lot of secondary school teachers now have more students, more stuff to mark, less colleagues to help them. Goodness me, it is a hard job. And I am not surprised at all that teacher well-being is going down and more teachers are seriously considering leaving and actually leaving. So from an academic point of view, a research point of view, 
um I think everything you said people can identify with without too without too much sort of deep thought. Um is there is there a conclusion that you come to? Um that one I guess means it could improve. Um and I know, you know, we might like the silver bullet where the education looks different overnight, but we know that's not going to be the case. Um and are we really in a position where the whole thing might literally just come to a grinding halt? Because it seems like it should have come to a grinding halt already, but because of all the the ways you know, teachers show up in the world, like you explained, it hasn't yet. But it seems to me that, like you say, with, with recruitment, with people leaving the profession, it's not going to be long before there just won't be enough people to actually physically look after the children, let alone teach them and actually provide an education which we think is is fit for purpose. Yeah, no, Mark, you are bang on the money. Um, so essentially, the government is, to, to a certain extent, relying on teachers kind of... Um, as I said, pro-social motivation, so desire to support students and work in schools to actually make sure schools are adequately staffed. Um, so I think I did, um, I wrote a paper, this was I think a few years ago now, where I show that I think one in four teachers, if they were purely motivated by kind of like financial considerations, would leave teaching immediately because they would be financially better off in a different profession, right? So they would leave overnight. So the government really is relying on kind of these motivations to make sure schools are adequately staffed. And in terms of kind of the, the, the silver bullet, if you will, to kind of fix the problem. So the, the first kind of the first kind of main thing is really, well, teachers need to be paid um, an amount of money that recognizes the important role they have in society. Um, it's kind of as simple as that. So they're an important profession. They, uh, they are literally shaping the next generation of this country. So they should be paid, they should be compensated in a way to reflect that. Um, so, you know, a substantial pay increase would be kind of, I'd say the minimum standard, but, you know, this is probably unlikely. So we know that there's been kind of um, the financial implications of the coronavirus pandemic. Um, I know this kind of the Treasury has been very reluctant to um, kind of increase school budgets. Um, so my impression kind of speaking with people from the Department of Education is that they very much want to increase teachers' pay. They want to increase school budgets, but the Treasury isn't giving them kind of a scope or opportunity to do this. So, so my impression is, um, you know, again, it's not that they don't want to do this, is that the Department for Education hasn't been given the resources to do this. So I think there is is things to, there are positive things about this. Um, and I think the other areas where the government really does have to step up is teacher workloads. They are working in incredible... I, I think it's absolutely insane how many hours teachers work. Um, so I'm married to a teacher. Uh, my parents are both teachers. My sister's a teacher. They work crazy hours. And I, I just, I feel so sorry for them. Um, it's just this incredibly hard job. And they all are very passionate. They care about what they do. And they work incredibly hard for it. And they could easily go into an administrative role or a different role on probably similar money, maybe a little bit less, but similar money, but have probably half the working hours. So it's um it's incredibly challenging role, um, so I think it's kind of for getting get rid of um, reduce the workload, also reduce the stress of Ofsted. So I'm not I'm not entirely convinced the way Ofsted is kind of run its current format is really that beneficial for anyone because I'm not sas particularly satisfied that it's actually measuring school quality. It's actually keeping schools accountable, and as well as kind of. The bits around the pandemic, so when kind of Ofsted, um, I don't know if you remember this, but Ofsted kind of cancelled inspections, and then they just randomly said, oh, actually, no, they're back, back on now, and really took a lot of schools and teachers by surprise. There's been some horrific instances of, you know, I think um, I remember that issue of a head teacher committing suicide after an Ofsted inspection. I mean, 
this isn't acceptable, this isn't helping the problem, this isn't helping students, this isn't helping teachers, this isn't helping parents. Um, so I think there does need to be some kind of um, changes kind of with that respect. Um, and yeah, and I think it's also kind of supporting uh, school leaders. I think it's also giving school leaders the ability to make decisions. Um, so one of the things we have in this country is that school funding is essentially um, done on uh, three levels. So it's kind of inner London, outer London, and the rest of England all have the same, roughly speaking, the same kind of funding structure. Um, while head teachers do have some flexibility to determine teachers' pay, the way school funding works is they actually don't have any flexibility at all. So for example, uh, there are some regions where they really struggle, so particularly in rural communities, where schools really struggle to attract teachers. And one of the really simple ways to get more teachers is, well, just pay them a little bit more. But schools in these communities don't have an additional budget to do this. So it's kind of, on the one hand, the government's giving them more money uh, or saying, oh, here you go, you have the power to do this. We recognize that if you have challenges recruiting staff in your school, you have the flexibility to offer them a little bit more money. Oh, but we're not going to give you any more school budget to do that. So it's kind of like there's these, these little like inconsistencies where someone had a really good idea that's based on research, it's really sensible, but then in practice, it's actually not not it's not possible to actually implement. So it's um, yeah, I think I uh, I rambled there for a bit. Uh, hope it made no, sense. No, <laughs> no I, I I can I completely see what 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 you're talking about there, and I think as as we said before, you know, people can identify that, especially people, you know, governors and people in leadership. Um, and and there were just two things I wanted to sort of to pick up on. One is the fact that, um, like I say, so many people can talk about how they'd like it different, but like I say, if your hands are tied, there's very little that you can, you can do about it. And I think also is that, you know, if we think back to even, you know, the financial crash in the financial situation we've been in, in austerity, and then we've had the same government for, you know, since um, 2010, or and, and it's just that kind of people don't remember what it was like before whether it was good bad or indifferent you know we just kind of know the rail the railroad that we're on um and with a, you know a general election coming in the next year or so and the economy maybe being different i mean it's always up in <laughs> um, um peaks and troughs in that kind of thing it may be that there are some different focuses some slightly different perspectives um a slightly different situation which means that like I say that tanker can turn just enough to kind of feel like you're you're back on a on a road which is going to be supportive yeah. rather than um negative as it were because I think it's very easy for us to sort of get into that <laughs> into into that road and and one of the things I remember that you know people that have gone into the profession now you know will have only known education as pupils in that particular era as well so so you don't even know how it could be different you know people who've never experienced it before Ofsted people who never experienced it before everything was about kind of cutting costs and, and doing it as cheap as possible and like I say that kind of the the professionalism of being a teacher, you know, what that was like, you know, a couple of generations yeah. ago. I mean, it really, really is a, an, an important thing to, to consider. And hopefully that there may be change. That's that's all we can say. And hopefully that will be a positive one or certainly it will have a different inflection, shall we say, um, should that, that arise, which will be, which will be really good. Um, I know one of the things you sort of talk about diversity, but also sort of gender um, in, in terms of state schools specifically. Um, I can remember, obviously, way back when I was in primary school, it really was a question of we did have male teachers, but not as many as female teachers. Um, and I guess there, that's kind of changed in terms of being even more of an issue is, is the years have gone on. And uh, so sort of take us into sort of your sort of research and, and thoughts along those lines as well. 
Yeah, no, no, that's it's it's quite a fascinating topic. Um, yes, I think over the last kind of uh, twelve months or so, um, the, the proportion of schools without a male teacher has actually increased, and this kind of is consistent year on year. Um, so I think it's roughly um, one in three state-funded primary schools don't have a single um, classroom teacher today, and that's roughly one in four in the state sector overall. Um, so it was, as we said, it wasn't always like this. Um, so this is trends essentially being kind of consistently um, looking this way since around 2010. So this kind of coincides with kind of the, uh, the public sector pay freeze after the uh, 2008 financial crisis. And kind of one of the mechanisms here is that, um, you know, in general, kind of um, uh, males' occupational choice of a decision of what job to go into, it tends to be a little bit more motivated by financial considerations than women. Um, so this means that kind of when a profession gets less financially attractive, on average, less men are going to be interested in it. So that means we see kind of a steady decline, a steady consistent decline in the number of men going into teaching and a steady increase in the number of men leaving teaching. Um, so this is kind of um, negative from kind of two perspectives. So one is, you know, we really want a rich and diverse school teaching staff, right? So we want to have schools where if a young boy um, has a problem, where, where maybe they feel more comfortable talking to a male member of staff, they should have a man to be able to talk to about that. Um, but it's also things about kind of like role models. So while it's it's fantastic that a lot of young men have, you know, role models in like in their household or maybe like in like um, like boys brigade or, uh, or kind of like sports teams or whatever it is, they have these amazing male role models. Not all young people do. And it's, you know, it is the case that some young, 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 young boys um, from kind of particularly less affluent backgrounds might not have this male role model figure. And actually kind of research does show that these things actually do matter, both from kind of a an educational attainment standpoint, but also like a socialization perspective. So, you know, students who have a good figure in their lives um, to, to kind of match with um, kind of tends to be kind of like gender often um, do actually perform better. They have better socialization and these other things. So actually, you know, this does matter. You know, other things are more important. So we obviously want um, excellent teachers, um, but actually the gender of a teacher can actually influence um, student outcomes, um, particularly kind of this, this role model mechanism. But there's also these really fascinating um, effects on like on teachers like expectations so it's um you know i think on average um female teachers have uh, slightly low expectations for boys or kind of um, higher expectations in terms of behavior for male students than male staff so actually you know if a boy's acting out uh with a female member of staff uh, they might treat them a little bit more differently than a male member of staff would so there's kind of all these little different things if there's um you know but again the effect sizes are small but actually for a young person from a less affluent background who's already probably a little bit behind because we know the kind of white working class boys are the lowest achieving in kind of in, in the UK. So these guys are already struggling a little bit and actually they're not having a good male role model and these other things, they really do build up and can actually snowball and influence kind of um, outcomes. And it really is where you start to realise that the details in the grey isn't it because it's mm -hmm. it, like you say it's you know you can talk about having standards and you can talk about having good teaching in inverted commas um but i know some of the greatest conversations i've had are those teachers and those people in education who are like where's the you know where's the base level um you know we can talk about english and maths if that's what <laughs> you have to talk about today um but this child doesn't have a, a safe home life and this child hasn't had breakfast and probably hasn't had an evening meal um they're you know, school is their safe place. So 
if that's the case, then everything else has to be put in place to make that work before you can even talk about any kind of academic learning. You know, yeah, um, that's that's even assuming that that's what school's for and it's in its prime objective. <laughs> and there's a whole nother year of podcasts, probably. Um, but but you could argue in that kind of more subtle way that this is the same thing. You know, in order for a child to kind of grow up um, well rounded and sort of based on you know an experience which is broad then having like you said positive male role models within their school which is where they spend a lot of time is going to affect how they grow and how they how they show up in the world how they interact and therefore that's going to have a big impression on all those other metrics that we talked about as well um but like I say, that's so far down an agenda. It's so far down a way that we can actually sort of clarify that or kind of crystallize what that would mean that, you know, it's in that gray murk somewhere and it's really hard to it's really hard to kind of make that change because the one thing people aren't going to do, bearing in mind we've got a retention and a recruitment problem, is saying, well, we're only going to look at sort of um, male members of staff. <laughs> and and I can't imagine. So I, I have spoken to... Um... So I've done quite a, a bit of kind of qualitative work and just kind of just speaking to kind of like my wife, her colleagues and stuff. And it's really funny the different impressions I get about how they see male staff. So some go, oh, yeah, we have one guy in our primary school. He's amazing. He's wonderful. Great with the kids. And others go, oh, we all have. We also are in a school school. We have one male member of staff. Incredibly lazy, but he gets away with everything because we just need at least one male member of staff. So it's kind of there is kind of there is a balance to work here because you know, yes, it's important to have a male member of staff, but we also want to have them hopefully be a good teacher, right? So, you, you know, so you shouldn't have one for the sake of having one. So it's, um, yes, yeah, so that's purely anecdotal. But um, yeah, I do have had some really funny conversations about kind of particularly in primary schools about kind of these female primary school teachers, their impression of kind of their male colleagues. And I um, I really enjoy it. It's, um, it's, it's great being married to a primary school teacher because I essentially get to it's essentially this is a probably like a long-term research project of mine just being married to one and just kind of seeing her develop as she kind of ex- gets experience and goes through kind of a, her, her her profession but it's um yeah fascinating conversations yeah and i always sort of think about you know you think about diversity and you think about the culture that you're living in if you're the one only male member of staff in a in a school of um of, of female teachers and senior leadership and and all of that that's that's a different working experience than it is being yeah. in, a, in an all-male experience or in a like i say a relatively equally spit kind of working environment as well and you have to remember that it it is a school but it's also a working environment as well and with that comes it's you know comes its um its challenges as, as, as well as the joys that come with it as well so uh yeah like you say i love that sort of anecdotal but um <laughs> i think there'd be plenty of people saying yeah, i've had that conversation or i certainly heard yeah. those stories as they've, as they've gone through it. yeah <laughs> um i'm always fascinated especially people who are obviously involved in education is there um an education experience or a teacher that you remember and and does that sort of influence or have an impact in sort of how you go about the work that you're doing yeah no so that's, that's a great no that's a brooding question mark so i in general i'm really fortunate that i kind of i've been raised in a household that really highly values education um so both of my parents are, are teachers um my sister's also a teacher my wife's a teacher so i'm kind of surrounded by teachers so i've been really fortunate to kind of be raised in kind of this 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 kind of um this household or, or a really loving unit that really just is passionate about education but kind of you know it's really important to kind of made you know do your best at school um but don't worry if you don't get it right so i think that's kind of 
So probably from that perspective, my mom. So I'm, I really struggled at spelling when I was growing up. And to an extent, I still do. But fortunately, like spell check and stuff, I can get away with stuff these days. Um, but my mom would really sit down with me and really go through spelling. And I would throw tantrum after tantrum after getting the questions wrong and just being really frustrated because I wasn't able to kind of get the right spelling. Um, and my mom really kind of sat with me and supported me and really um, was really patient with me probably too patient because i would have probably given up but um yeah just kind of really patient and supportive and going through that um in a similar vein i'd probably say my spanish teacher was also really supportive so i can barely spell and write in english um getting me to do it in spanish was a whole nother kettle of fish it was awful um my spanish teacher was lovely she was very honest she really helped me a lot i managed to scrape a c and I took that and I ran. <laughs> that was, um, it was really struggling. So I do have a really funny story. If we went to a, um, a teacher's parents evening and I remember, so we were having a conversation with my Spanish teacher and, and we had like these, these note cards. We have one side, the English and one side, the Spanish. Um, and my writing in both English and Spanish was so bad that they weren't sure which side was the English side and which side was the Spanish side. So it's, um, but they were uh, yeah so my mom and my spanish teacher really um got on well and they really did um <laughs> knuckle down and support me to uh to to kind of um just just kind of pass it and uh and, and then i dropped it very quickly because it's uh, it really didn't work well for me uh there are so many things about this which i really love one what is the fact that like you say you had to pass it so you have to do what you do and that you had the support to do school but also the fact that what you learned and what we can, you know, as someone who's doing your job in a university is the fact that, like you say, with spell check, you know, we could talk now about AI, we could talk about actually what's important in learning and that can be very different than school. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and I think that's really key for people who are struggling and whatever, you know, separating out the fact that I'm doing school and I can't just bail, you know, if I want to do what I want to do, yeah. then I have to go down that route to some extent but with that knowledge of knowing but actually that's not going to hinder me in what i'm going to do because you know you must need to be able to spell doing the work that you do but however you go about that in this modern world obviously gives you what you need you know yeah yeah no it is crazy now that's a great point because I, I do essentially you know part of my job is obviously teaching but part of it is i do kind of actually write for a living so i write papers i write a lot of stuff in kind of the media and kind of these different things and um yeah, and I think fortunately we live in a day and age where I do have kind of spell check. And um, but I think it's also kind of my general message would be it just comes with experience and time. I think, and and yeah, I think you just have to kind of do it your own way. And it's um, you know I now have a style of writing that really works for me. I, I'm now I wouldn't say I'm a I'm a good writer, but I'm constantly improving. And I think that's the way you have to really look at this. Just go. Don't compare yourself to others. Compare yourself to where you were last year, eighteen months ago, six months ago, and just say, well. Have I made progress? Do I have a better template for writing now? Does the structure for a little bit better? Because even now, I, I especially go back to like, um, like maybe some of the stuff I did in my PhD and I go, goodness me, I thought this was amazing. This is a little bit rough around the edges, but it's, um, yeah, so it's just kind of like going, but it's also quite nice to really see, well, this is where I was and this is where I am now, imagine what I'm going to be like in 18 months, right? It's going to be amazing. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, hopefully this continued upward trajectory, but it's, um, yeah, no, so it's, I think, just because I know, I know um, in the, the last bit, you, you mentioned that um, 
teachers are working incredibly hard and dealing with hard circumstances. And it just kind of reminded me of, um, so I did a survey a while ago of teachers and I, one of the questions I asked them was, you know, how much of your own money do you spend on, um, on, on your pupils in an academic year? And I think something along the lines of one in four said they spent over 200 pounds on their pupils. And this was to buy things like, um, like cereal bars for their students. Cause they noticed that they were coming to class hungry. So they couldn't concentrate. Um, kind of uh, female hygiene products because they know they noticed that kind of a lot of female students were starting kind of their periods and they actually didn't have any sanitary products um, and this was affecting their schooling. It's just kind of just things along those lines that you go, why is it that kind of schools and are relying on kind of a goodwill of teachers to provide for themselves when actually the school should have this set up? And then the question goes, well, if a school probably would like to do this, but if they don't have funding, well, that's probably a problem because, you know, school, as you, as you kind of really nicely said, the learning aspect is only one part of school. And if students aren't in a safe environment where they are fed, where they're hungry, where if they are going to school hungry, how do we expect them to learn when they're concerned about their, you know, their home life? Maybe, you know, things are happening at home when they're hungry. So it's, um, yeah, no, Mark, I, I really like kind of that point you mentioned. I just thought I'd like to echo it. Yeah. And I think also the thing that struck me when you were saying about, you know, having your own style of writing and that kind of thing is that actually certainly for me I, I recognize this in myself was that when it's important to me because it's a subject matter I'm interested in and it's something I want to do it's not that you put the extra effort in but it's got a it's got a real purpose to it and so therefore you find the best way that works for yourself you know doing your 10 or 20 spellings on a Friday when you're in, in school has less sort of appeal from that point of view <laughs> um and and I, and I and i think that for me that's often something which i kind of try and remember and sort of impart for people is that kind of you know all of these things whatever the subject area or whatever the maybe the the issue that you have with it or yeah the focus you need upon it is very different when it's got a purpose and it relates to to what you're doing yeah um what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given or indeed is there some advice you give your your younger self and i know you just mentioned about that being better than yourself yesterday i think that's great <laughs> advice as well yeah no so that's um i'd probably say just just try not to just like worry about stuff just really just kind of try to have the attitude of you know whatever will be will be you work hard you do your best and whatever happens kind of that's how it's meant to be right i think having kind of bad attitudes um, helped me a lot. Um, so kind of when I, when I was younger, so I um, I got I did very well in my A levels. Um, I got um, interviews at Oxbridge um, at Oxford. Um, so I got interviewed at Oxford, and I was kind of rejected at the interview stage. So I did well in the exam, and kind of they didn't. And kind of my attitude at that point was it's the end of the world because you know I was very well, very academically inclined, barring my spelling in Spanish. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, and, and kind of when I got that kind of rejection, I thought it's like the end of the world but I remember I had a really nice walk with my mom and it was just like actually maybe there's another opportunity here maybe you know actually a lot of people really struggle at Oxbridge because it's a very specific kind of environment and actually not everyone's suited to kind of that kind of that um that group so I know uh, I, I work with quite a lot of people who went to Oxbridge and actually um a lot of them are hoping their children don't go to Oxbridge because it's just this, it's a very specific environment where not everyone necessarily thrives so actually um, so I went to the University of Essex in the end, um, and I actually had a great time, and I actually um, progressed very nicely. Now I'm an assistant professor in kind of you know an, an elite university of Warwick. So I think everything does work out in the end. So you know even if it's not the direction you expect your life to take, 
just you know don't worry about it just do your best work hard enjoy life enjoy enjoy kind of the route enjoy kind of the, the, the path you take and you know wherever you end up that's where, you, where you're meant to be and just you know try to try to enjoy life um and there's i think to add on to that there's more to life than work and studying and you actually have the you know just in trying to be your best to enjoy life um that's kind of my <laughs> my advice to a younger self just you know enjoy where you are don't worry about you know obviously do your best put in the hours studying but you know also make sure to enjoy yourself yeah couldn't agree more i think very well said um is there a resource you'd like to share and this could be anything from a video song film book podcast but something which you you think would be interesting for people i love audiobooks so this is something that i've been told by so people have always thought so i read a lot in my day-to-day job and i'm also my eyes get very very fatigued just kind of staring at screens so i really struggle to read in the evenings um, and i enjoy reading but i really struggle to read in the evenings it's far easier to sit on a device flick through something throw something on that it's far easier to do that um, but I've started to um, to both kind of. Um, this is going to be saying make me sound very hippie, and I accept that. So I've started to try to do like stretching in the evening mm-hmm. while listening to audiobooks. Um, which, if you told me like a year ago, this is what I would be doing, um, I'd have laughed in your face because typically I'm just like uh, just gross, 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 just sitting in front of a TV eating some, you know, I don't know, some crisps or something. No. I'm now stretching, listening to audiobooks. I feel very cultured. It's very, very good for you. And actually, it's a really nice way to relax before bed. Um, so, you know, if you, I know, so if you're kind of a teacher listening to this, or just anyone in general, life can be really stressful sometimes. You need to put kind of that downtime for yourself to relax. Because if I kind of, if I'm working right up before bed, I'm not going to sleep. My brain's too busy thinking about 15 different things. I'm not going to bed. That means that I'm going to wake up in a bit of a mood, kind of ruins my week. But if you can set that side of time, even 15, 20 minutes aside, just to do a little bit of stretching, listen to a nice, you know, audio book. Um, yeah, that sounds great. So that's um, that's a resource I discovered relatively recently. So I think it's just through the library. You have uh, I didn't realize through your library account you have access to this. Um, so I'm very, very excited about that. And I'd recommend uh, anyone who kind of likes reading this is a great way to quote unquote read. I guess it's technically reading maybe um, without actually having to do the, the hard work. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And I love the way that our so-called sort of ideas of life can change on a sixpence sometimes and just be very different. <laughs> and especially when it's all that 180 kind of, this is where I was and this is what I'm doing now. And I was right both times. So it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and just um, and just to round up, we... um. Obviously, the acronym FIRE is important with Education on Fire. And by that, we mean feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. Just what's the first thing that strikes you when you hear that? So I, I like the empowerment. So the, the FIRE is a great acronym, by the way. Um, so they have the impact and like, in, was it inspiration? Yeah. Inspiration. Yeah. No, so I, I, I'd like to think, so I see my role as an educator as like, so it's definitely different in kind of a university setting than a school setting. So I see myself as more of a, a facilitator of learning in that. So I only have, you know, three hours of contact time with students per week. So I can't, I can't teach them everything in that period. There's not, not a ch- if I could, that'd be incredible. Maybe I do, but I don't think I do. Um, it's about kind of making the subject exciting and influ- and kind of exciting and something kind of that they can digest and then giving them the resource and opportunity to go away and actually do further study about this. 
So I'd like to think kind of my remit is kind of from the lecturer perspective is just to exactly that is to inspire people to kind of go, hey, um, what he's discussing, this is really interesting. This is really important work. And actually I can apply this um, when I get a job outside of university because hopefully all the students are going to go get really interesting, cool jobs where they apply what we teach them. Um, they'll get some cool, cool job in business where they get to use some data and they actually get to kind of make decisions and really well-informed decisions using some data. So I think that's, um, that's kind of what struck me for first. Yeah, love it, love it. Um, and finally, where can people find out more about you, read some of your research or, or kind of sort of dive into, into the world that is uh, Joshua? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a brilliant question. So I was really excited. So I have like a, um, so if you just pop my name into Google, so that's um, Joshua Fullard, you should come up with, um, there's now like a knowledge panel which I think is really exciting, which apparently I'm important enough to have a knowledge panel. <laughs> Who knew? Um, so all my work is freely available. So if you go into Google Scholar, um, you can just see kind of a combination of my academic work, some of my policy works, so that's all publicly available. Um, yeah, and I'm also super friendly. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, hey, what he sounds like really cool, um, send me an email. I get a lot of emails from students, so it may take me a little bit of time to get back to you. And do not be afraid to give me just a gentle nudge going, hey, Josh, I sent you an email five months ago. Um, <laughs> a reply might be nice, but um, yeah, don't, don't take my uh, my lack of response for anything other than just me being very busy. Fantastic. Well, Joshua, thank you so much. It's been absolutely fascinating to chat. Um, we, I love talking about these things, and and, um, and I love the fact that you know people's views and my ideas um, can be um, thought through and, and discussed with with kind of real research and understanding and knowledge as well, which I think gives us all a, a sense of purpose really that we we you know we do know what we're talking about we do the experiences are real um and that we can kind of make um decisions based on like say having the expertise of people like yourself telling us that yeah we're not all going completely army <laughs> in, in the worlds that we're living in within education so yeah thanks so much for being here today no it's a pleasure mark i've really enjoyed chatting to you and um, i hope your listeners have enjoyed this as much as i have thank you thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community with over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.